Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to get into those words and just the verses preceding in chapter 11 as well. So please have your Bible open with Acts 11 and 12. Uh, we're going to pray and then get into those words. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks for this holiday time at the moment. Uh, and we pray for those who aren't able to join us this morning that they would be well rested uh, as they take a break during these school holidays. But we pray now for us that you give us uh, insight and wisdom to understand your word. Uh, that We pray that you would give us uh, the great strength to work hard to see your truths in what uh, Luke wrote in this, lovely, in this wonderful book of Acts. And we pray in Jesus' name for these things. Amen. When you think about your life, or when you think about the world today, do you see the Lord's hand at work? Uh, some Christians, when they look at their life and they see the world, they see everything, like absolutely everything, as the Lord's hand at work. A new job, or a sunny day, or a good conversation, or a refreshing breeze, all of it is the Lord's hand at work in the tiniest details of life. Whereas other Christians might do the total opposite. They go about life and they never see the Lord's hand at work. They don't really think like that. Things just happen to them in this world. It's just chance and fortune. Uh, it's the laws of physics running their course. Or maybe they say, you know, bad things might happen because of the curse of sin, but, but there's no other reason, really. They say, yeah, God's in control, but he's concerned with the big things of history. You know, he's concerned with when Jesus was around, but for 2,000 years he's not interested in the tiny details that go on each day for us. How do you see the Lord's hand at work? How do you think about it? Now I ask this not because this is the main question that this passage is all about or answering. Uh, this passage, this sermon, we won't be able to answer all the questions about that idea. But our passage does say, look at chapter 11, verse 21. The passage does say the Lord's hand was with them and a large number became Christians. So maybe we'll see along the way how the Lord's hand is at work or how Luke thinks about it as he writes this book of Acts. Well, today is our last week in the book of Acts for the time being. Uh, soon we'll be starting our new sermon series in the book of Romans. Uh, so be excited about that, but why not read ahead so that you're ready for that? Um, but let's remember what we've seen in the book of Acts of late. We need to refresh our memories. It's actually been two weeks because we had Easter last week and public holidays. What did we see in Acts two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, we saw that the gospel of Jesus is not just for Jews, uh, but that Gentiles, non-Jews, they can repent. They can have their sins forgiven and find life in Jesus. And we saw that through miraculous circumstances, God sent Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And do you remember the last verse that we saw? So have a look back in chapter 11, verse 18. Flick back and look. Verse 18 says, Then they glorified God, saying, So God has granted repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. And it was this momentous turn, this great realization, as they realized God's plan for humanity was greater than they ever could have imagined it to be. Those first Jewish Christians, they would have had no idea that God's plans would extend all the way to the ends of the earth, to us sitting here today. They wouldn't have imagined it. But they should have, because Jesus said 
this very thing. Way back at the beginning of Acts, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. He said, chapter 1, verse 8, the risen Jesus says this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to all nations. So we've seen Luke, who wrote Acts. Luke, he's been setting the stage. He's been showing us the beginning of the gospel, going out to the nations. It started in Jerusalem, spread to Judea. It's gone to Samaria. And now it's just started to go to the ends of the earth. So we've seen Saul a few weeks ago. Saul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he was converted. And straight away, he starts preaching Jesus. We've seen the persecution that's in Jerusalem that's led to Christians scattering all across the world. And we've seen the first conversion of a Gentile household. That, that was two weeks ago. So, this, so it's just on the edge of exploding all over the world. And so now Luke wants to show us the beginning of that explosion. Uh, the formation of a Gentile church. So far, the big church has been in Jerusalem made up mostly of Jews. And then there's been little clusters of Christians all around the place, but most of them, by far, were Jewish people, believing in the Messiah that was promised. But here in Acts 11, we get this big work of God as he establishes a big and growing, mostly Gentile church. So come with me into the story. Luke shows us that the gospel is growing in Antioch and Jerusalem, Uh, But he begins by telling us about a revival in Antioch. And it starts in verse 19. Now, we didn't read out these verses before, so you have to follow along in your Bible, and we'll see them. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, Those who have been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, that's back in chapter 8, they they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. So do you remember Stephen from many, many weeks ago now? He was one of the magnificent seven, one of the seven men chosen for admin in the Jerusalem church. Um, But he became the first Christian martyr when he confronted the Jews and then they stoned him to death. And so persecution ramped up from that time. Almost all the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, thousands of them probably, fled into all the different surrounding countries and places. And wherever they went, well, they just couldn't help speaking about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. But it seems at first they only spoke to their fellow Jews. Jesus was the promised king of Israel, so that's who they spoke to. Yet they didn't understand that the gospel, they didn't understand yet, that the gospel was for the Gentiles, until verse 19. Look at those beautiful words. Oh, wait, maybe that's verse 20, I should say. Verse 20. But there were some of them, some Jews, Cypriot and Cyrenian Jews, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, to Greek speakers and Gentiles, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. See, whatever the work of the Lord's hand is, it is definitely people coming to know Jesus. See, these small clusters of people were becoming Christians everywhere. Yes, they were mostly Jews, but then one Gentile household comes to faith. We've seen that. And then, well, God chooses to do a mighty work in a city called Antioch. And a large number, it says, dozens maybe, hundreds maybe, of Gentiles 
believe in Jesus and turn to him. And for the first time, a mainly Gentile church is born. So far, the big church, remember, it had been in Jerusalem, made up of Jewish Christians. Now, a big rival church springs up in Antioch. But are they a rival church? No. They're not a rival church at all. Because verse 22, the Jerusalem church finds out and then they send up Barnabas to check it out. Do you remember Barnabas? His name means son of encouragement. And he's the one who sold a field and gave all the money to the apostles, to the church. Barnabas, he's filled with the spirit, the spirit and zeal and he's trusted by the apostles. And so they send him up from Jerusalem, up north to Antioch to check things out. And what does he find? Well, there's more beautiful words in verse 23. When he, Barnabas, arrived and saw, what did he see? He saw the grace of God. He saw God's kindness had saved these people. And so he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. So on behalf of the Jerusalem church, Barnabas goes up and he welcomes and accepts this church in Antioch. And he urges them to keep going for the Lord. This, this is no rival church. They are one and the same people of God. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall, any hostility, and he's united these people, Jew and Gentile, as his precious and loved people. And so they love and accept one another. It's wonderful. It's so beautiful. And it's just another helpful lesson for us that we shouldn't let anything come between us and our fellow believers. See, no matter what differences we might have, we shouldn't let them come between us. We should be united in our common faith in the Lord Jesus. Isn't that right? If someone genuinely believes in the Lord and follows him, then they are a brother or sister in Christ. Let's not let anything divide us if Jesus doesn't. But things didn't stop there in Antioch. Not only did they grow quickly, they kept on growing. Look at verse 24. It says that large numbers continued to be added to the Lord, to become Christians. See, this church, it keeps growing and thriving. And so Barnabas, he decides he has to do something about it. So he goes and he finds Saul, the Apostle Paul. He brings him back from Tarsus. And this is the first place we see Paul and Barnabas working side by side for the gospel. They are partners co-workers in mission and evangelism and discipleship. So together they stay in Antioch and teach the church for a whole year. And they make sure this church is grounded and planted and firm in the gospel. We have to realize just what a big step this is in the book of Acts and the cause of the gospel. Uh, because we might be tempted to kind of read through these verses and be like, cool, another church, another group of Christians, that's wonderful. And it is, but it's actually more than that. Because what we see happen from here on is that the church in Antioch becomes the new center of Christianity in the world. Did you notice the end of verse 26 before? Look at it. The end of verse 26 says, The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch is how Christians got their name. That's how big this moment is. That's how significant this church is. And today, we, we finish our series in Acts, 
But when we come back to Acts later on in the year or early next year, or if you read it for yourself, what do we see? We see from Acts chapter 13 and on, the Apostle Paul goes on his three missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean with Barnabas and with others, proclaiming Jesus, establishing churches. But where does he start from every time he sets out on a journey? And where does he come back to and share mission updates and reports to? Antioch. You can see Antioch on the right of this map here. From here on, Antioch is Paul's home base. It's his sending church for his three missionary journeys. And that's what Luke is showing us here. You know, just as we send the newbies out to the Philippines or the blouses out to Argentina or the McDowell's to Paraguay, and every few years they come back and they share and report what God has been doing, that's what Antioch is to the Apostle Paul. And that's why he's telling us this story. This is a huge moment in the spread of the gospel. The Lord's hand is at work. He has saved this big, mostly Gentile church. Praise God for that. But more than that, this church will go on to play a pivotal role in seeing the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. You and I sit here today because of the church in Antioch. Because they sent Paul and Barnabas and others to proclaim Jesus to all the known world. And then it just kept spreading and going until it reached us here in Sydney, Australia. If you know Jesus, you and I sit here because of God's work there in Antioch. Praise God for that. So the Jerusalem church, the mother church, with the apostles, they love and accept the Antioch church. But the chapter finishes with a kind of a little footnote of a story but it's another really beautiful little event. The church in Jerusalem accepts the Antioch Christians, but then the Antioch church loves the Jerusalem Christians. So if you look at verses 27 to 30, just look over those verses. The Holy Spirit warns about a great famine that's coming. And what does the Antioch church do? Well, they bundle up food and money and they send it down to Jerusalem to the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians loved and accepted the Gentile Christians. The gospel of salvation came from the Jews to them. And so now the Gentile Christians love and help the Jewish Christians in their time of need. It's just another example to us. We are to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, again, despite any differences. Is that not just the logic of the gospel If you're family in Christ, if you are one in him, then put aside any differences, forgive grievances, and love and help those who are in need among you. But it's this uh, mention of the Jerusalem church that makes Luke shift back to talking about the Jerusalem church. So when we look at chapter 13, we'll we'll see Antioch a bit more. uh, But here, Luke has one more thing to say about the church in Jerusalem. And on your outline, this is the second part of our passage, which we read before, persecution in Jerusalem. And the focus here is, yes, the persecuted church in Jerusalem, but it's also very much about King Herod, the persecutor. Now, the Herod family of kings is a confusing thing if you've ever read the New Testament. Uh, There are multiple King Herods in the New Testament. Uh, None of them are nice in any way. Uh, But this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. So 
So the grandson of that Herod is this Herod here, Herod Agrippa. And he, he just walks in the same ways as his forefathers. Because look at chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. So the scene has changed from a very positive story to a very sad story. We're back in Jerusalem. The persecution keeps ramping up there. And we have here, sadly, the second Christian martyr and the first apostle to be killed. Herod has killed the apostle James. This is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. James was one of Jesus' earliest disciples, one of the twelve, and he was one of the three closest friends of Jesus, along with Peter and John. And so this is, this is just a massive blow uh, to God's church. And we don't know exactly why or how, but James, he's cruelly executed for his faith and for preaching Jesus. We need to remember that although it might seem like a far-off thing, we don't know if one of us will face death for the name of Jesus. Shouldn't we pray for the same resolve as James, to stay true to the Lord, the same resolve as Stephen, who boldly stood up for Jesus' name? So James is dead, but Peter is next. Look at verse 3. Then he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews to have James killed, which is an awful thing to think. Uh, he proceeded then to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in the prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So the anti-Christian Jews, they were happy with James uh, dying. And so Herod, well, why don't I go for the head honcho, he says. Why don't I go for Peter and see if that makes them happy? And I don't know about you, but you should probably get a bit of an eerie sense of deja vu here. Because this is now the third time that Peter has been jailed. Uh, the difference this time is, Peter is all alone. But also, when does this happen? It happens during the Passover week. The very same week in the calendar that his Lord and Saviour was arrested and killed. And Herod's intentions are very clear. He's not just giving Peter a bad Airbnb for the weekend. He's, giving him a, he's not just giving him a scare and then he'll let him go. No, he intends this to be the last place that Peter stays. Again, are you praying for that same resolve as Peter and strength to be faithful if someday someone wants to throw you in prison for the Lord Jesus? But here, verse 5 gives us a hint of hope. Because it says, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. And of course, they would pray. That's what, God, that's what God's people do in dire situations. Because he can do anything. And in this situation, he does do something. See, at the very last hour, the night before his planned mock trial and execution, God sends his angel to miraculously free Peter. Just as God kind of shamed and humiliated the Jews when they imprisoned Peter last time and he got out, God now shames and humiliates Herod. 
And we don't have time to go through all this story in all the detail, but let's just notice a few things. If you look at verse 7 and onwards, what do we see? First we see, uh, well, first of all, I just love how blunt uh, and abrupt this angel sounds. He turns up in the cell and he, he whacks Peter in the side and says, get up, put on your clothes, let's go. Uh, he sounds like an impatient parent rushing his family out the door. Uh, but Peter, he doesn't think it's real. He just goes along with it. And then all of a sudden he realizes when he's out in the street, oh, the Lord has rescued me from the hand of Herod. Uh, so off he goes and he finds his fellow believers. He knows that they'll be at the house of Mary. Mary, the mother of John Mark. And this is also the first time that we're introduced to John Mark. This is the Mark who wrote Mark's gospel in our Bibles, which is pretty cool. He's the cousin of Barnabas. And so later on, we'll see John Mark traveling around the place with Paul and Barnabas, preaching the gospel. So Peter turns up, he knocks on the door of Mary's house, and the girl who answers the door runs back and says, it's Peter. And everyone's like, no, it isn't, Rhoda. That's silly. You've lost your mind. It must be his messenger, or it must be his guardian angel, which is a bit of a weird thing that they say. Uh, we're not really sure what they meant by that. But eventually, they let him in, and with joy and excitement, they receive him and he explains everything. And then he disappears into the night again, fleeing so that he can be safe. And that's actually the last time we hear of Peter for a few chapters. Uh, we focus on Paul from here on in. But what do we learn from this really interesting story, God saving P Peter out of prison? We learn that God, by his power, can and does protect Peter. His hand is at work. God can and does protect his people as he chooses and in his wisdom. We have to be really clear, though, that this is not a promise for protection from all bad things for all Christians all the time. That, that's fairly obvious. Peter was imprisoned, first of all, before he was rescued. And prison is not a nice place in the first century. And he was eventually then killed about 20 years later for his faith. And James, James wasn't rescued at this time, was he? You know, I'm sure the church was praying fervently for James, just as they were praying for Peter, but God in his wisdom and in his goodness decided this was the time for James to die. But it's not yet Peter's time. So his purposes, God's purposes, to get his gospel to the ends of the earth and to bring himself glory through Jesus what meant that James would die now and Peter would not. He would be rescued. But we don't know exactly why that is. We can't know the mind of God on all these things. Why would we expect to be able to? We need to humble ourselves and recognize that he is God and we are not. The Lord's hand is at work, but we, he doesn't always tell us what his hand is doing. Instead, we trust him. We trust his power and wisdom and goodness. We trust that he will give us all the protection he wants to give us for our eternal good and for his glory. And we trust this. And, we, and what we trust is this, that no human power and no force of evil can stand in his way. All he needs to do is send his angel and the job is done. And it's this that leads us to the last little bit of our passage today, uh, where God sends another angel to do another job. Because while Luke here finishes the story of uh, Peter's persecution and the persecution in Jerusalem, Luke has a little bit more to say about Herod. 
He caps off the story of Herod and his just end. So what happens to King Herod? Well, uh, this story is many, you know, maybe years later or months later. Uh, some of Herod's subjects hold a, a political rally for him. He's been angry with them, and so they try to appease him. They throw him, appease him. They, they throw him a big party uh, because he's a tyrant, and his people are afraid of their lives, and so they uh, need to throw a party to make him happy. And you can actually read about this party in the letters of Josephus, the Jewish historian. Now, he tells us about this. He gives us some more detail about some of the events uh, here. Uh, he's writing outside the Bible. So verse 21, Herod, he comes out in his, all his glorious attire. He sits on his throne and he gives an address. And because the crowds are trying to win him over, make him happy with them again, they're flattering him and they say, verse 22, look there. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not a man. See, they're sucking up to him, aren't they? And it's at this point that God has had enough of Herod. See, Herod's killed one of Jesus' apostles. He's imprisoned another with the intention of killing him. And now Herod has done this. Look at verse 23. At once an angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God, and he became infected with worms and died. Someone you know, had a little chuckle as we read that before. It is a very striking image, isn't it? And notice the order that it says it in. It doesn't say he died and then the worms ate his body in the grave. No, he was infected with worms in his gut, and that's what killed him. Again, you can read what Josephus, the historian, says about this. He said that Herod was struck with intense pain and died five days later. See, Josephus uh, doesn't say this, but we know from these verses that it was the Lord's hand. Not just chance, but Luke says the Lord's hand is work. It was his angel that was sent to strike him. That's a pretty confronting story, isn't it? But Luke is actually very unashamed to say that this was a deliberate and just act of God. Um, yeah, Luke is unashamed in saying that because Herod had done great evil to deserve it. He knew the God of Israel. He knew about uh, Yahweh. He knew the, the Jewish law. He maybe even claimed to believe and live some of it. Some of his family were somewhat Jewish. Uh, and they knew full well, he knew full well that he was accepting blasphemous words about himself as they called him a god. He knew he was taking the glory that belonged to God alone. So not only will God protect his people, as we've seen, he will also bring the evil to justice. Again, just like with the protection of Peter, though, we can't say exactly how and when God will judge an evil king or a leader. We can't know the mind of God on all these things. We don't know what his hand is necessarily doing but we can know and trust this, that he does work for justice and righteousness in the world and in history. And ultimately we know that he will bring about justice and righteousness on the last day when he sends his son back. So Herod meets his just end. And then in the very next verse, Luke tells us the result. And again, we see these beautiful words. Look at verse 24. So it's then God's message, the, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus, flourished and multiplied. Gospel growth. 
is what Luke wants to tell us about. Whether it's in Antioch or whether it's in Jerusalem or anywhere, the Lord's hand is at work. And that's what Luke wants to show us more than anything else. Have you noticed that as we've read week by week? That's what he just keeps referring back to. That's all he cares about. He wants to show us gospel growth. He wants to show us how God's message flourished and multiplied. He wants to show us the Lord's hand at work. Through the persecution of Stephen, through the scattering of Christians, and through their bold proclamation of Jesus, he wants to show us that through that, God brought about a big and growing church up in Antioch. And he wants to show us that through that church, he would provide for the needs of another church. And the gospel kept growing. And Luke wants to show us, even in the persecution of God's people, and even in the just removal of an evil king, he wants to show us the Lord's hand is always at work to grow and multiply his word so that more and more people would know him. He wants to show us these people who were impacted the gospel and then impacted others for the gospel. People like Saul, people like Barnabas and John Mark and, and Mary and James and Peter. He wants to show us that God's message flourished and multiplied and the gospel was growing. The Lord's hand was at work. And I think Luke would want us to see our world and our lives in the same way. And God has caused these words to be written for us as scripture for that reason. So that we might see the Lord's hand at work. So that we might catch the same vision and zeal and passion for the gospel to grow in our world today. For God's message to flourish and multiply. For the good news of Jesus to go out to the ends of the earth to all nations. So that everyone who believes can be saved. There's nothing more important to Luke than that. It's what God is doing in the world today. And so there should be nothing more important to us. Let's pray that this would be so. God, our Father, we pray that your hand would continue to be at work in our world. That you would draw all people to your Son as they see his death and resurrection as it's preached to them in the words of the gospel. We thank you for the spread of your gospel and your hand at work throughout 2,000 years of history, seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus as your word has spread and multiplied and flourished. We give you thanks for this and we ask that your hand would be at work in us, in our hearts and minds, that we would have that zeal and passion that the, that the writer of Acts had, that Luke had, to see and rejoice in the good news of Jesus going to the ends of the earth. Help us to see it in the big ways and the small ways that are before us. Supporting the good news going out to all the ends of the earth. Uh, you help us to use our time and energy and money for that. But Father, help us also to see the opportunities right before us, to see the gospel grow in the lives of our neighbours and our friends and our family. And give us boldness to speak and be ambassadors for Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.